The scripture reading for today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be reading Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 46 to Luke chapter 7, verse 10. We'll be looking in particular at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 today, but it comes within the context of the last part of Jesus' sermon on the plain. Jesus has been preaching to a crowd of his disciples, not just the 12, but a a large multitude, it says. Now we're listening to him. And he calls them, after he calls them to a life of kingdom living, he then closes that off by calling them to obedience. And this sets the stage for the next section that we will be looking at today. You'll be able to find that on page 1188 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 6, verse 46 and following. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently. And immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. When Jesus went with them and When he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowds that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it was a big deal to be a man under authority in the Roman army. The Roman army was renowned for its discipline. And it had to be. Because in many cases, it went up against armies that were a lot bigger than itself in the initial stages of the Roman Empire. And it was only the iron discipline of the Roman legions that led them to victory. We get a bit of a description of 
what that looked like here as the Roman soldier. This Roman centurion speaks to Jesus. Here in verse 8, he says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. Absolute obedience like this was expected. Committing even the smallest of crimes in the Roman army resulted in a flogging in front of the century, which was the smallest, one of the smallest groups in the Roman army, or the cohort, which was made up of multiple centuries, or even the legion as a whole. The century was about the smallest unit with a hundred men in it, moving up to the legion that could have up to 5,000 men in it. So you would be publicly flogged in front of the, these groups of men. For greater crimes, the penalty was fines or deduction from your pay allowance. And for the greatest of crimes, including desertion or dereliction of duty, showing cowardice along the line as the army marched into battle, a soldier would be stoned or beaten to death with clubs in front of his troops by fellow soldiers, themselves whose lives had been put in danger by his actions. And if they escaped that, as they were beaten down, they managed to run away, then they would be allowed to go, but they would forever live under banishment, and it would be known across the Roman Empire that they were a deserter. Because wherever a Roman soldier went, he carried with him the tattoo of his particular army unit. Suffice it to say that being a man under authority in the Roman army meant that you were under absolute authority. You were expected to obey. You were expected to comply without question. This was the rigid structure that this Roman soldier had in mind as he speaks to Jesus in verse 8. But there's more to it than just that. When you were in the Roman army, you knew that for the most part, the Roman army also had your back. Now, there were exceptions to this, it's true, but... For the most part, veterans, after their years of service, would be assured good care, a plot of land, and more. When people who were in the army had complaints or injustices that had been committed against them, for the most part, they could trust that these would be taken care of as they moved upwards in the structure. This was your responsibility to those who were under your command. There were exceptions, yes, but men like this centurion today genuinely cared for the people who are under their care. And it's this genuine concern for his servant that gives us a bit of a picture of that today. So you have these two things in this world in ancient Rome. You have this picture of a rigid structure of authority in which there is absolute obedience. And then on the other hand, you have this picture of a structure in which you are taken care of and you are protected, that you know you can trust in. And it's with these two points as his background that this centurion comes to Jesus. This is what has shaped his worldview. And he comes to Jesus. 
He comes to Jesus as one who recognized that Jesus was an authority. And that also meant that he would take care of those who were under his authority. He had the right and he had the power to do so. And so he cast himself at the mercy of Christ's authority. And in doing so, he illustrated exactly the kind of humble trust and obedience in the authority of Christ that Jesus was speaking about at the end of his sermon on the plain here. Humble obedience and trust. Not just saying Lord, but believing in what that title means and responding to it. And so this brings us to our theme today, a response of trust to Christ Jesus' absolute authority. And we'll see, first of all, the noble centurion, second, a humble response, and third, a request fulfilled. So what was this man like, this centurion? This soldier that we're introduced to is actually described in a remarkable way. We see Jews of all people, Jews coming to Jesus on his behalf as a Roman soldier. And they beg him earnestly, saying that the one for whom Jesus should do this was deserving or worthy. I want to pause for a moment and look at what they meant by worthy. Again, he would have already been a remarkable man in his own right as a centurion in the Roman army. The Roman historian Vegetius writes this, A centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons, and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all the exercises, he is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. You can see there again a picture of that required obedience, readier to execute authorities than to, uh, orders than to talk, strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright. Now, for those of you who may have experienced the army or maybe the police force as well, you'll see how some of this sounds familiar. In either of those situations, they'll talk about the importance of having your weapons clean and bright, well-maintained, everything taken care of. The emphasis on attention to detail was the same right back to the time of the Roman army. So considering the description by this historian, we can see that this centurion would have been a remarkable man in his own right just to come to this position of centurion. But that's not first and foremost why he's described as worthy or deserving. He's described as a worthy Gentile. He is a man who is not a Jew. He is a man who, from the looks of this passage, is not even a, in the class of God-fearers, as you would call those Gentiles who were following the tenets of Judaism. And yet he's still described as a worthy Gentile. Today, when you think of this picture of a worthy Gentile, your mind might immediately go to those Gentiles, which is to say non-Jews, who are called the righteous among the nations. 
These are the ones today who have been recognized on an international level by the Israeli government for risking their lives to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. They are seen as having carried out particular services to the Jewish community in recent history. And so they get this label, righteous among the nations, worthy Gentiles for these extreme acts of service. Well, this title that we find today in our, in our world and in our society today is something that has its roots that trace way back to rabbinic Judaism, which traces its roots right back to men like the leaders that are mentioned, the elders that are mentioned in our passage today. This man was considered worthy in their mind. He was considered a worthy Gentile, given a title that was used for very special people. So why was he worthy in their mind? We can see that he loved the people that were under his care. He acted as a sort of policeman on behalf of the Roman Empire in the garrison that he would have been in, keeping the peace in this particular region of the world. But for him, it was more than just being a police officer. This centurion wasn't one of those men who was grudgingly kicked out to a backwater corner of the Roman Empire and was just waiting to serve out his time. Certainly not. He was a man who grew to love the people who were placed under his care. And you have to understand that for a Roman, this was something remarkable. To be a Roman citizen meant that you were considered part of the greatest people, the greatest empire on earth. You were looking at being a member of an empire that didn't look very highly on those who weren't Roman citizens. They saw them as barbarians, as less civilized somehow. The only ones that the Romans had any real respect for were the Greeks because of Greek culture, which they appreciated. But even them they looked down on because they had conquered them and therefore they must be worth less. This centurion, however, stood out because he genuinely cared about the things that were important to them, even to the point of funding the building of one of their synagogues. He genuinely grew to love the people who were under his care. And this for the Jews, resulted in them loving him in response. And these leaders coming to Jesus saying, he is worthy. This flowed out of the welfare of those under his authority, being a top priority as being part of the structure of the Roman army. This was remarkable. And yet it's something for us to remember as well. When an authority is sincerely concerned about the welfare of those under his care, one commentator says, it's usually easy for others to submit to his leadership. And here the Jews embodied this response, calling him worthy. But despite all of that, despite all that we see, in the second place we see a humble response. These Jews have come to Jesus on behalf of this Roman centurion. 
And one of the first things the Roman centurion does when he becomes aware of this and aware of the fact that Jesus is coming to him is send a delegation to Jesus saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. This is very unique from a Roman perspective. First of all, a Roman officer calling a Hebrew rabbi Lord? Unthinkable. And yet he does call him Lord. The first thing that does for us as readers is bring our minds back to the verses right before us. Jesus had been addressing the crowds of people who were before him, many of whom liked being associated with his popular teacher. And they followed the crowds around, calling themselves his disciples. They came to hear him in the Sermon on the Plain. And yet they were not carrying out what Jesus called them to do. And so you can see in chapter 6, verse 46, he says to them, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? They gave him the name Lord, but here's the problem. They didn't actually recognize his authority to speak into their lives. And yet, here, on the other hand, we get a man who comes to him and who embodies humility. In calling somebody that, from a Roman perspective, would be looked down on, Lord. And he recognizes his authority. He recognizes Jesus as having divine authority given by God, even enough to command to have his servant healed. And so we get two perspectives here. We get, on the one hand, the Jews who who come to Jesus and say, this man is worthy. And then on the other hand, you have this man coming and saying, actually, no, I'm not. Any other Roman soldier could have ordered his presence there, but not him. He treats Jesus as if he is some superior officer who's coming to visit him on a really minor matter. I don't want to trouble you. He gives him honor and respect. This is something that we should keep in mind, loved ones. We don't summon Jesus and listen to him and take it or leave it, but we approach him with humility and respect. We must approach him with a humility that recognizes our own unworthiness, our own need, his authority, and the fact that any grace he chooses to show is complete grace. This is the kind of humility that Jesus has called his disciples to model. And this is one that they had not been modeling, at least not to this extent, which is why he had felt the need to rebuke them. Here you had a Gentile who was not part of the people of God, though showing this level of honor and respect to Jesus Christ in recognition of his authority. But there's more to it than just that, than him expressing a recognition of his authority by calling him Lord. But you also see him expressing a trust in that authority. The centurion recognized, he realized that God's kingdom was also structured in a chain of command. And he knew that if Jesus commanded, whether given in person or from a distance, if Jesus commanded, it would be carried out. 
He recognized that Jesus would be interested in the welfare of those under his authority, that that would be a top priority for a good leader. Now, not being one of the people of God, he saw that he was not technically under that chain of command. He was not technically under that divine authority as far as being able to come to it and ask for help. And so it was not something that he as a leader could, could put his faith in from his perspective. He couldn't necessarily rely on it in the same way that somebody who was outside of the relationships that were formed by the chain of command in the Roman army couldn't trust on superior officers to be obligated by that relationship to care for a person who was outside of that chain of command, a regular citizen who reached out in faith and asked for help from that chain of command. And yet he knew And he trusted that health and sickness was under the authority of Jesus Christ as one who had divine power. And so, just like the many citizens who had come to him and who had asked him for grace and for help, and he had responded to them as somebody who was not part of their people, but somebody who was still interested in their care, Just as many people came to him asking for his support, although they were not Roman citizens themselves, they were under his sphere of influence and so could humbly ask for his aid. And so he, in turn, turns around and comes to Jesus. So now he's coming to Jesus in trust and asking him to exercise his authority on the centurion's behalf for the benefit of someone who was under his own care. He comes to Jesus and he looks to Jesus for the power to carry out this task. He trusts Jesus. Again, this so beautifully models what Jesus had been preaching and teaching that we see Jesus looked at him and he marveled at him. And he says to the crowd that follows him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now there's no outright criticism of Israel's faith here. But it's a foreshadowing of something that is coming. In the author, in Luke's context, The centurion became a symbol for all who were coming, a symbol for the believing Gentiles who stood in contrast to unbelieving Jews that they too could put their trust in Jesus Christ. It gave hope to the Gentiles and to us today too that they could be included under the salvation from sin that he offers and the mercy and grace that he shares. This brings us to our last point. He sends these messengers back to the house and those who were sent back to the house, verse 10, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, was the faith of that centurion rewarded because he was such a good person? Certainly not. In fact, he himself had confessed his own unworthiness before Jesus Christ. 
He himself confessed what Jesus Christ had been teaching to the crowds who were around him before, that your heavenly Father is merciful to the ungrateful and the evil, verse 35. And all of us who come to Jesus fall under that umbrella. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But his faith was rewarded because of the one in whom it was. Like Jesus said in verses 46 to 49, the final section of his Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, if you build your foundation on Jesus Christ, he will be there to catch you as you step out in faith. Now, does this mean that we can start asking Jesus and expecting all kinds of healing miracles from him? Does this mean that we can start showing frustration if he doesn't choose to heal? He hasn't promised healing. We can ask for healing. He may choose to deny us the answer to this request, just like he had denied others in the New Testament. You only have to look at 2 Corinthians 12 for one example of this. But what this does mean is that we can come to Jesus in trust with the entirety of our lives. Even as we continue on struggling with illness or struggling with sin or struggling with other things. That when we turn our griefs, our sins and our sorrows to him, we can trust that we're building on the rock that is Christ. We can trust that even in the midst of sorrow, he is there for those who call on him. Even those who are unlikely. Even those whom other people might not consider to to fit within that framework. That all who call on him are building on this foundation for eternity. We must understand the absolute authority of Christ. We must know and believe the principles that the centurion had observed in the Roman chain of command in the military that he trusted were true in Christ's kingdom as well. That his authority is absolute, yet that his, the welfare of those who are under his authority are his top priority. And he looks to provide for those who are in his care. Even though we do not see him like a centurion did not see him personally, trust that his authority is still real. And so we lean on him today, beloved. We lean on him today, not just calling him Lord, Lord in name, but calling on him in truth. Seeing his authority, recognizing his authority over our lives, not just in his power to help us, but also in every sphere of life. And his call to humble ourselves as we draw near to him, trusting that he is merciful, trusting that he is merciful even to the wicked and to the unworthy. Amen.